that promise. I mean, when someone keeps a promise and their promise was fulfilled, it is really encouraging, isn't it? It feels good. Well, on the other side, though, when people make a promise and they don't come through, it can be very disappointing. You know, promises are made to us all the time, aren't they? Not just by people we know, but the world, media, makes promises to us, promises that, you know, you do this, you'll lose weight, you know, use this, you'll get healthier looking skin, you'll get whiter teeth, you know, here's an easy way, you know, to, to exercise, here's a way to get a better night's sleep, I've tried a lot of those, here's, here's a way to get rich, here's a way to increase your income a little bit, all these things that were promised in our society today. The problem is that so often there's promises that are made to us that just really cannot be kept or fulfilled. Like promise of a sound. But, but you know, we just can't, sometimes we're just disappointed and we face this disappointment. And this is especially true of promises that are made to us that, where the stakes are a lot higher. Like in the areas of promises made of honesty, that someone's going to be honest with us and they're not. Of faithfulness, someone promises to be faithful and they're not. Or someone promises they're going to keep us safe and secure and they don't. Or promises of fidelity that are broken. These bring disappointment. Promises are important. Well, for the next year and a half... Okay, for the next year and a half with some gaps and other things happening, you guys might, the sowers might be back a couple times before we uh, finish this series. But we're going to spend the time looking at the, a book of the Bible that is all about the most important promise that was ever made. Okay, the most important promises that ever made and not only how it was 100% kept and fulfilled, but actually how that promise impacts every single area of our lives. This week, we're going to begin this journey in the gospel of Matthew. Now, as many of you know, the word gospel means good news. And it's the good news because it tells the story about Jesus and how he is the fulfillment of all the things that have been said about a coming Messiah and a Savior of the world. He is the fulfillment of that. Now, many people, before we do this, many people wonder, why is there four Gospels? Why is there Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? Wouldn't one condensed version of Jesus' life sufficed and helped us out? Well, the answer is that each, really, each Gospel is written for a distinct purpose. Now, Mark was written primarily to those that were unfamiliar with the Old Testament, Okay, his audience was basically those people that were living in the Roman Empire who really had no understanding of the Jewish religion whatsoever. Okay, so that's who he's writing to. Luke's gospel was really written to a more uh, intellectually inclined mind of the day. Remember, Luke was a doctor. So that's kind of how he is writing. And it's re it really, Luke is a recording of multiple eyewitnesses of accounts of Jesus' life. And really, his focus is portraying Jesus as this perfect man. He lived perfectly while he was here. And the Gospel of John was really written to establish the fact that Jesus was God, like I like to say, God in a bod. Jesus was God who came in the form of a man. Now, the, see, these four Gospels were all written with four different aspects of Jesus' life as they were looking at it, okay? Each Gospel writer wrote from a different perspective and to a different audience. 
And each looked at Jesus' character from different angles. That's why each one of them is so important. We can't just say, oh, I read one, so I've got this. No. We see all different angles of Jesus when we read the different Gospels. So we're going to go at a very specific angle for the next chunk of time. It's most likely that Matthew wasn't the first gospel that was written. It was Mark was probably the first gospel that was written. And although Matthew never mentions himself as I wrote this, most all church tradition unanimously unanimously points out that yeah, this had to be uh, Matthew that was right writ, wrote this uh, book. It was written right around 70 A.D primarily to a Jewish audience. Now, that's what we have to remember as we think about this. Primarily, it was written to a Jewish audience, to the people that were really familiar with all the Old Testament prophecies and all the promises that were made about Jesus. It was written for the purpose of convincing mainly Jews, but but other people as well, that Jesus was the long-awaited and anticipated Messiah that was talked about so much that people were just anticipating so much this person coming. This is who, what it was about. So this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to actually look at the first 17 verses of Matthew chapter 1. And we'll actually, if you've already looked at it and you've already taken a little peek, you've noticed that it's just one big thing. It's all genealogy. It's all genealogy, the the whole thing. I told you we were going to start. I couldn't wait to get back to teaching verse by verse. Well, we're going to have to put that off for another week while we go through this genealogy. But what, and interesting about this is that most people seem to think that, okay, this is really inconsequential. It's not that important. I don't know about you, but I've written, read many times when I get to a place in the Bible and a genealogy comes along and I go, oh, yeah, whatever. That's just blah, who, begat, whatever, whoever, fathered, whoever, whatever. Well, that's not true. The thing is, nothing could be further than the truth that this is inconsequential, this genealogy. This genealogy that Matthew gives is so important. It announces, it's the genealogy of Jesus, and it's an announcement to everybody, everybody, especially to its original readers, of the most exciting news of all time. This must have just been, this genealogy, I got to tell you, must have been mind-blowing on multiple levels to his original readers. The genealogy of Jesus reveals some amazing and powerful truth. Bless you. Let's first, let's look at the first verse first. We will look at a couple verses individually, but most of the time in group. So, the first verse says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, have any, how many of you have done the DNA swabby or spitty kind of thing? How many, okay, some of you, do, I really want to do that. I really want to do that. Um, I hear that's pretty cool to find out your ancestry. And usually there's a lot of surprises from what I hear. I know Lee, I've talked to him. He's done it, was totally blown away by, by what he found out in his. Um, but G, I got to tell you, Jesus' genealogy, the genealogy of Jesus that Matthew writes down is very, very revealing. It's extremely revealing. You see, throughout the Old Testament, it was prophesied that the Messiah was going to come. This was an anointed leader that the Jews were expecting to come and bring them into an age of liberty and joy from all the oppression that they've been experienced. This was going to be their time. They were going to rule. So, man, they were ready. They were ready. They wanted him to come. And the other thing is, it had been 400 years since there had been any sign of God. God had been literally silent 
for 400 years. Prior to that, he had spoke through kings and through prophets and through all sorts of things. But he had been totally silent for 400 years. And, but instead of the people heeding all these prophecies that were, the coming Messiah was coming and preparing themselves and getting ready for his arrival, actually they had grown pretty calloused and cold because of the silence and really the brutality of living under the Roman dictatorship. So they hadn't gone where they, were should, where they should have gone. So the first thing that we're going to see here, the first we're going to see that, that G, Matthew's genealogy of Jesus reveals is that it reveals his identity and his mission. Okay? First and foremost, and this is going to lay the groundwork for the entire rest of the book, okay? He, he, what he says that he is the Christ. Literally, he is the anointed one. He's the chosen one that will deliver his people from the penalty of sin. Now, we see here that David calls him, I mean, I mean, Matthew calls him son of David and the son of Abraham. Is there something in this front row that people are allergic to? We're just like, me? Okay. <laughs> it's been known to happen. I see it. What, what, what he calls him the son of David and son of Abraham. And you got to understand, this is vitally important. Because what he is doing is he's linking Jesus to the two most important and influential figures in all of Jewish history. He's not just giving us his general, oh, here's, here's who he's from. We swabbed him. We found out he was from here. No, that's not, wasn't it at all. This was very specific reason that he did this. Remember, Matthew was writing specifically with the Jewish mind in, in, his, in his head. He was thinking, okay, writing to them. So we need to take a closer look at these. We're going to take a quick look at these two historic figures, Abraham and, and David, so we can get an appreciation really for what Matthew is doing here, okay? First, in tracing Jesus' lineage back to David, Matthew is establishing, listen, he's saying that Jesus is the royal successor and the rightful heir to the throne of David's kingdom. That's a huge message for all the, the Jewish people. Th listen, this is the guy He's the rightful guy. He is the heir to the throne. When you think when they nailed Jesus to the cross, what they put above? Hail, king of the Jews. It was a mocking sense, but it was totally true. He was coming as king, the new king. You see, God made a covenant or a promise with David back in the Old Testament that his dynasty would be established forever. David's dynasty would be established forever and his descendants would reign and rule on the throne forever. Look at 2 Samuel verse 7 says this. And this is, this is God talking to David. Your house and your kingdom will be made sure forever before me. Your throne will be established. How long? Forever. And, and David's probably thinking, okay, yeah, there'll be some guy that comes along and will, you know, but he's starting, I think he was getting some of what he was talking about here. Because it's also important to note that all throughout the Old Testament, there are literally hundreds of prophecies concerning this anointed king or this savior that was going to come. Look at Jeremiah. Jeremiah 23, 5 says this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. This is a reference to the Messiah. And he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. You know, even Jesus himself, even Jesus himself, he said, listen, what they said about me is true. In referring to himself right before he went back up to heaven, 
He said, he said this in Luke. He says, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and even the Psalms must be fulfilled. He's saying, That's, I'm the guy. I'm the guy that this is all talking about. So we see first in Matthew, what Matthew does, he's linking Jesus to David as the rightful heir to the throne of David's kingdom. And this would be so important in the mind of the Jews. They would either be really ticked off about this, blown away, or they, that would have been a huge thing for them to hear. Now, now he calls Jesus the son of Abraham. And when he does this, what he's doing is he's connecting Jesus to the father of all the Jewish people. Now he's going another, he's going another angle here. Excuse me. <coughs> But, in both, but back in Genesis, we see where this happened. God made a covenant or a promise with Abraham to create from him this great nation. Okay? He said, you will be a great nation. Who is this great nation? Israel. He said, this great nation is going to come from you. Look what he says back, way back in Genesis chapter 12. He says this. Now the Lord said to Abraham, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. You see, what Matthew's doing here is he's bringing his, all of his readers and us, our attention back to this promise of God's plan to rescue the world from sin and from darkness through the lineage of the patriarch Abraham and to be a blessing to all humanity. That's amazing. We're going to look at that more and more here. So in tracing this lineage back to David and to Abraham, Matthew is ultimately doing it. He's affirming Jesus' identity as the Messiah, okay? And, as the, and who that was his identity and his purpose is to come to be the Savior of the world. There could be no doubt. That's what Matthew's doing here. He's trying to leave. There's no doubt at all who this guy is. Next week, we're going to look at the birth story. <laughs> it's Christmas time next week, okay? Next week, we're going to look at the, act, the birth story of Jesus, so he's trying to make sure they understand, everyone understands who this was. He's given a great preamble here about who is coming, okay? So as followers of Jesus, really for us, with whom our identity is actually found in Christ, our purpose is to proclaim to the world that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the true king, the true savior, so we have a world that just was locked into worshiping powerful, powerful people. But as followers of Jesus, we know that there is one true king. There's one true person that can save us from our sins and from our selfishness and our pride. And that's Jesus. Can you hear Matthew writing this with a loud pen or quill or whatever it was? Listen! That's what he's trying to let, so it impacts how we live our lives. Okay, second thing. Second thing that Matthew's genealogy of Jesus reveals to us is that God includes unlikely people to accomplish his plan and purpose. He includes unlikely people. And some of you are going, thank you, Lord. 
You need to understand. So you got to understand. Put this in the context again. Back then, the pedigree meant everything to the Jews. It meant everything. The purity of one's lineage and who they could be linked to was a paramount issue for their social standing, for their inheritance, and for certain rights. So it meant everything to have a spotless, wonderful, cool-looking, well, they didn't lose cool back then, really nice-looking lineage, okay? Yet Matthew's genealogy of Jesus, in this section we're going to look at right here, is nothing short of scandalous. It really is. To the people that would have been reading it, they would have, you got to be kidding me. Because this is not the only genealogy of Jesus in the Bible. It's not. Luke has a whole different one from a different angle. Matthew purposely takes this angle. I want to read this. We talked about this in staff meeting. I was like, should I read all this stuff? They're like, it's, and they're, you know, the staff here, they're wonderful people. Rob, it's God's word. Okay, okay. So we're going to read it. So we're going to go. I've been practicing the names. This section is not too bad, though. So look at verses 2 through 6, okay? These are Jesus' descendants from Abraham to the King David, to King David, okay? Approximately about 700 years. Okay, here we go. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram, and Ram, the father of Abinadab, and Abinadab, Abinadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king, and David was the father of Salmon, wife of Uriah. Okay, this is very important. The people, these are people are in here are strategically placed. Okay, like I said, Matthew specifically chose these people that are in his lineage and he could have gone a different route. An important thing to understand is that actually he also kind of went through these different lines. And, that, that, and at, po at what point here, what he does is he includes these unlikely people to be in this lineage. He's making a theological point. A lot of times that's what they did with lineages back then. They would write them in a specific, specific way to make a point, to make a theological point. That's exactly what Matthew is doing here. Okay, and that point is that God uses unlikely people to accomplish his plan and purpose. Now, if you were to take the time to go study all these different people in this section, that you will, you'll find there's quite a bit of dysfunction in these people's lives and in their family. For instance, let's go through a few. Um, Isaac, Isaac tended to lie under pressure. He avoided conflict at all cost, and he played favorites between his sons, and he alienated his wife. Okay? That's one of the patriarchs of, our, of the faith. Judah sleeps with a woman engaged to his son while she's disguised as a prostitute. Okay? David, man after God's own heart, had a guy murdered so that he could get a guy's, uh, his wife all to himself. But probably the most interesting fact, though, about this, though, is that he, Matthew includes women in his genealogy, which for that time was really an unconventional thing to do, being a very, very patriarchal society. Unfortunately, women back then were viewed as no more than really possessions with no rights whatsoever. Yet really, more importantly, 
that he included women, it's the women he chose to put in this genealogy. I mean, he could have included such social matriarchs as, you know, as Sarah, as Rebecca, as Rachel, if you read about that, if you read about that. But instead, he includes Tamar in verse 3. Tamar is the one who actually sleeps with Judah. She, her, she de- disguised herself to sleep with her father-in-law in order to secure herself with future security. Rahab, we all know if you know the Bible story, she was a prostitute. There's Ruth, who although her character was stellar, she came from a line of Moabites, this Moab, people of Moab, a people that were known, they were known everywhere for incest and godlessness. Okay, and then there's Bathsheba, who although she's not mentioned by name, and she says, they say Uriah's wife, is known for her involvement in the sex scandal with David. I love this. I absolutely love it. You won't find that same lineage in Luke's gospel. I love this because this tells us that God is all about including unconventional and imperfect people in his plan and in his purpose. Isn't that awesome? And that includes you and me. He's not about looking for the stellar people. Yeah, thank you. He's not about including the stellar people or the people that got together. That's not the point. That's what Matthew's trying to get at here, okay? What is it about, I want to ask you, what is it about your past? What is it about my past or my personality or your personality that keeps you from thinking that God won't include you in being, doing great and powerful things according in his plan and in his purpose. Today, really, you guys, this would be a great day to look at this little piece of this, of this genealogy and say, you know what? God used imperfect, whoa, really dysfunctional people. And then look at yourself and look at who you think you are in Christ and realize that God has so much more for you. Those things do not hold you and I back. They don't. In our minds, they do. In God's, they don't. And I believe that's what Matthew is trying to tell us here that he does not hold anything against us. So, oh, well, you're not qualified. It's a, great pro- it's a great thing. So, third thing. Third thing that Matthew's genealogy tells us is God is faithful to his promises to his children despite their unfaithfulness. God is faithful to his children, to his promises to his children despite their unfaithfulness. In Jesus, we, you know, the reality is that God fulfills his promises through Abraham and David and he, that he will bring forth the Messiah, okay? That's what he's saying here. And he does it despite how unfaithful the people are all along the way that he charged with announcing this and being the example and pointing, him, pointing people to him. They failed miserably, that's what, that's what his next section, this next section we're going to look at, that was Matthew's emphasis here. Look at this, verses 7 through 11. Really what it does, it lists the rulers of Israel from David until the time of exile when the, when the Jewish nation was conquered by Babylon and they were taken into slavery. This is about a 400-year period. So here we go, 7 through 11. And Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jephthah, something like that, and Jeth, no, it's Jehoshaphat, yeah, that's who it is, Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, 
and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Je Thank you. Jeconiah, and I should have had you read this whole thing, and his brothers at the time of Babylon, of the ba deportation, deportation to Babylon. Now, it's important to notice here that this list includes good kings and absolutely deplorably evil kings, okay? Actually, in this list, seven were good, seven were horrible, absolutely horrible, you see, God, God's intent was for Israel to be this distinct people, okay? A nation that would be a blessing to all of humanity by pointing them to this promised provision of a Messiah. That's what it was. And it's not because he chose Israel because they were so wonderful. There's great verses out there that say, listen, I didn't choose you because you're like so big and so strong. No, I just chose you because I love you. It's God's choice. But here's the plan. But they didn't do very well with that plan, okay? And this is throughout their history. They really failed to do this. And in this section, they really quite literally, loyally, royally blew it. They royally blew it in this section by some of these kings that were just absolutely evil. Yet despite their faithlessness, God remains faithful in keeping his promise to bless all nations through them by providing redemption through faith in a single individual, the Messiah, Jesus. He, he could have just said, heck with you guys. It's not going to happen that way anymore. I'm doing my old thing. He says, no, this is the promise I made and I'm sticking to it no matter how unfaithful you are. So what does, that, what does this mean for us today? What I think this really means is that we can count on God keeping his promises no matter what. No matter what. I know a lot of us know that in our head, but do we really, really believe it? As followers of Jesus, we can know for certain that God looks at us and he sees us as righteous. I think a lot of times, okay, those promises were meant for these kind of Christians. Those promises are made for those kind of people that act this way and don't do this. No, not at all. Because when Jesus sees us, he sees us as righteous. Look what 2 Corinthians verse 5 says. I love this verse. It says, for our sake... He made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, here it is, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So many of us know this in our head, but do you actually believe that God sees you as 100% righteous? That's hard. That's hard, isn't it? But that's exactly how he sees us. As a child of God, as a follower of Jesus, we are righteous when he sees us. He doesn't mess up and he goes, oh, the righteousness cover just went away. No, it's always there. It stays there. We don't have to worry. We don't have to worry about wondering if God's displeased with us or he's turned his back on us because of something we've done. It doesn't work that way. We can bank on the fact that God be faithful to keep his promises despite our faithlessness. I know this concept is tough. I know I find it really tough too. I know it in my head. Heck, I'm paid to know it. But I got to tell you, it's hard. It is so hard. 
It's a difficult concept to grasp. And you know what the concept is? The concept gets, boils down to grace. It boils down to God's grace. It's his unmerited, undeserved favor towards unworthy people. Did you get that? Grace isn't just something, oh, God, oh, give me, gave me grace to make sure I did okay on that test or did good on that presentation or whatever. No, that could be part of God's grace, but the biggest part of God's grace is this undeserved favor right in the midst of our most heinous, ridiculous, horrible sin. God is loving us. That's amazing. Absolutely amazing. It's a gift. Ephesians 2.8 says, for by grace... You've been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. I love this. It's a gift. It's a gift. And he just lavishes on us. And because of his grace, God keeps his promises no matter what, no matter how unfaithful we are. Now, I'm not giving you saying, okay, go out and just do be horrible. Don't, you know, whatever you want to do. No, as we desire to follow God, we're going to fall. We're going to trip. We're going to make huge mistakes. But there's no mistake that's big enough to outdo God's grace. Psalm 145 says this, for your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. You rule throughout all generations. The Lord always, always keeps his promises. He is gracious in all he does. So what are these promises? I know some of you know these promises. My wife, if you've talked to her at all, she's really hot on this website. She's gonna, she told me she, to tell me I had to tell you this. No, she didn't. That... <laughs> what is it? 360promises.com. It's 365promises. 365.com. 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 365.365. Thank you. I, I've mentioned this before and I got it wrong last time too. Great website, delivers a promise to your inbox, email every day. Um, it's a fantastic thing because I think the problem is we forget the promises that God has made to us. Because we're living our life, we're, make, we're living in this sinful world where we struggle with different things and we forget that these promises are powerful and they're wonderful and they are absolutely amazing. And literally, there are thousands, thousands of promises in the Bible. And I'm going to list every one of them right now. <laughs> Kidding. But for, really, for our purposes, I just want to list a few of them. A few of the ones that I think that uh, are significant, these at least came to my mind. You might have others for me today. And I, I mean, I'll have them up, on the, up, on the bo- up here also so you can write the verse down. So First Chronicles, I love this one. First Chronicles 16. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His steadfast love endures for a week. No, forever. Romans 8, 28, and we know that for those who love God, of uh, God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. All things work for good, everything. Think of that difficult thing you're dealing with right now. He uses it for good. 2 Corinthians 5, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is past, new has come. Philippians 1, 6, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. He's going to keep working. He's not going to stop. Philippians 4, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Matthew 11, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden. 
I and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Fantastic promises for us to hold on to, to grasp onto. Okay? What promise? Oh, wow. What? I better take a drink. Uh, let me ask you, what promise? I was, I was mimicking you as I was giving a guess. Um, what pro, I want to ask you, what promises or what promise do you need to remind yourself right now? Do you need to constantly remind yourself that God's going to be faithful in keeping? I know in our head we believe that in general God's going to be faithful to me, but, some, but really what we need to get specific with these promises. We need to know. We need to know when a situation comes along, when we're doubting, when we're scared, when we're fear, when we're hurting. We need to know that there's a promise that we can latch onto that's very specific to our situation, and it's out there, out there. So I encourage you to just go dig deep on these things. I encourage you to latch onto a promise. Latch on because they are life-giving, Okay. They're life-giving, and these are the things that are going to get us through when life goes sideways, when life is really tough. When you're young, when you're in high school and college, so much can be so confusing, so much can be just, ah, what's going on, the drama of life and everything. This is, that's the time, the young, when you're young, is the time to start learning the habit of grabbing onto God's promises. What does he really mean for me? What does he really mean by this? What does it mean to be, not be anxious? What does it mean to let the peace of God dwell in me? Does that mean that if I pray to him, all problems go away? No. What it means is I know he's there and he's working and he's doing things in me for, for my good and for his glory. But that's not a message I wake up with in the morning. I don't know about you. I don't wake up with that at all. We gotta remind ourselves of these promises. Okay, third section. Third section of Matthew's genealogy highlights really Israel's time when they are in exile. You see, sin and rebellion, it led this nation, their nation to be conquered by the Babylonians. The temple was destroyed and the people were enslaved in this, for, in this foreign nation. Really, this is a low point for the Jew, in Jewish history. It really is a really low point in their history and in their relationship with God. This was a moment when their, the future of God's people was really looking really dim. If you were on the outside looking in, you would think, oh, pff, it's over. That's that's just not only have they just messed up, now they just their sin has led them to be just conquered and pulled, you know, dragged off and to be slaves. All right, God's done. Yet the third section that Matthew's genealogy of Jesus reveals to us is that failure does not mean the end. Failure does not mean the end. I mean, have you ever experienced this in your life before? You've made mistakes, or you've given in to sin or been mistreated, and have somehow come to see these things as determining your value before God, and being determining factor to the extent of which God is going to use you. God, I'm broken. God can't use me like that person. You don't know what's happened to me. That keeps me from being able to do whatever. That's a lie of the enemy. And that's what he's trying to tell us. That's what Matthew is trying to tell us here. Because that's not how God works at all. His grace is, over, is always flowing to us. You see, as, as failure and we have setbacks happen, 
He sees this not as disqualification. He sees this as part of the process of molding and shaping us into the people that he wants to use for his glory. It's a process of shaping. You might say, well, how come God's not shaping them like that? Well, maybe, maybe they're not open to being used. I don't know. But if stuff's happening in your life, there's stuff that's happened or things about you that just feel like this doesn't allow me to be who I think God could really be honored by. That's what this part of the genealogy is about. He's telling us you are not, you are not on the sidelines. And we see this in this section. What seems to be the end of a nation actually ends up culminating in the arrival of the King of Kings, of the Messiah, okay? This tells us that our, at our lowest point, it's not the end, and it doesn't define who we are. God still has a plan in the midst of that. Listen to the promise, one of the promises I didn't mention. He says, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. That's powerful. That's what he wants to do. These are the words that were spoken to the prophet Jeremiah. These were actually given to him back then to be able to say, this is what I have for you. This is what I have. Now I'm wondering, did I, did I, did I have slides for that last section or did I not? I think we did them already. Okay. Did we, we didn't, we, we, did we read that one already? No, we didn't. This is, the, this is the hard one. So here we go. Ready? I don't have it on my notes for some reason. That's why. And after the deportation to Babylon, this is after they're going now. Okay. Jeconiah was the father of Shilti. Thank you. And Shiltiel, the father of Zerubbabel. And Zerubbabel, the father of Abud. And Abud, the father of Elikim. And Elikim, the father of Azor. And Azor, the father of Zadok. And Zadok, the father of Achim. And Achim, the father of Eliud. And Eliud, the father of Eleazar. And Eleazar, the father of Mathan. And Mathan, the father of Jacob. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. Wow. Wow. That's amazing. That's amazing what, he, what, God, what God did there. So he is using this period to show us that, listen, failure does not mean the end. Okay, finally, let's wrap this up. Finally, we come to the last verse in Matthew's genealogy of Jesus. Let's look, let's look at verse 17 real quick. He says this, so all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Now, it's interesting that Matthew organizes this genealogy into three distinct sections. Why does he do this? Why does he give these three sections? There's all sorts of, scholars have all sorts of reasons why that he did this and why there was 14 in each one, all, all the different things that he says. Really, I believe that this is to show that the birth of Jesus is the culmination of God's grace for all of mankind, poured out to all of mankind. We don't know why he did specifically, why he did it, but it really shows in my mind and shows in different things I read, this is really a good culmination of God's grace. You see, what Matthew wants us to understand, that all of history up to this point, all of history up to this point 
is the culmination of the coming of the Messiah. Everything that's been happening builds up to this. When God's grace would be poured out on all of mankind as he continues to use unlikely people to establish his plan and his purpose. People who are prone to be unfaithful. People that are prone to make mistakes. People that have made big things that people would think you're disqualified whatsoever. Yet, when God, when, yet these are people that God has made a promise to be faithful. That's us, to be faithful and to use us despite our faithlessness, our weaknesses, and our failures. You see, with this genealogy, what Matthew is doing, Matthew is showing his readers and us that Jesus is the promised Messiah who makes God's amazing grace available to everyone all the time. That's what he's trying to say here. That's the bottom line. It's available to everyone all the time, lavishly. I'm going to encourage us. We need to be, let's be people that are mindful. This week, our week, our assignment this week, let's be thankful for God's amazing grace that is poured out to us because of the coming of the Messiah, the King. Let's be thankful. Let's be willing to even extend that grace to other people. All right? Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much. We thank you that your word, once again, is powerful and something that really does change us and is alive in us. And I thank you for the fact that we can look even at someone's genealogy and see that we are, can be encouraged that we can play a part in all of this. That God, you use so many different types of people that have done so many different things. You could use them for your plan and your purpose because your grace is so amazing. May we just relish in that this week, Father. May we relish in your promises this week that are just so available to us that we know that you will be faithful to keep no matter what. God, we're thankful for the God that you are and that you love us the way that you do. In your son's name we pray, amen. Let's stand as we sing our last song.